I just wonder this afternoon if, um, if I can ask you a favour um, as, as we study this. Um, sermons are a kind of two-way thing. Preaching is a two-way thing. Um, I have an important part to play in that, but so do you. So here's my commitment, right? I am going to do the very best I can to teach God's word in a way which is engaging and helpful and applied. I'm going to do my best I can. I'm going to ask you, will you do the best you can to listen, to stay awake, and to work hard. I'm going to be working quite hard. I would love it if you worked hard too. And if at any point this afternoon you find yourself getting bored, which is not impossible, let me just make one thing absolutely clear, because this is really important. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is either me or you, but it's not the Bible. The Bible is never boring. It is the most powerful, dynamic, relevant, glorious book in the world. So if you're bored, it may be my fault for which I apologize. It may be your fault for which you need to do something, but it's not God's fault. So I'd love us to have uh, 1 Corinthians 4 open in front of us. And it may be that I said that because I'm feeling a bit sleepy this afternoon and, uh, and recognize it might be a bit of a struggle. Oh, great. <laughs> It's a great start. There we go. Right. 1 Corinthians 4. Let me read. Page 1146. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've been learning about this church in Corinth. It was a church that had pushed Christ out and therefore were getting seriously messed up in the way that they were acting. Let me, let me read chapter 4. And you'll notice, if you've been around for the last few weeks, you'll notice there's some similar themes. Um, He takes a gear shift next week, but you'll see some similar themes. So chapter 4, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What did you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign, so that that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. 
We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Wow. We want to try and understand what's going on there. What does that mean? And why is it so important and relevant for us? And I want to unpack this passage by explaining to you a principle which I have slightly grandly called the Micaiah Dilemma, which sounds like it might be some actual thing from psychology or you know, the world of something, It isn't an actual thing. It's a thing that I came up with, but I thought it had a ring to it. And I want to try and explain to you what the Micaiah dilemma is, because I think that even though you may think, what is he talking about? When I tell you what it is, I think you may understand. I think you may even be able to relate to it. Now, this uh, Micaiah dilemma comes from a story in the Old Testament about a man called Micaiah. I'd love you to turn to it so you can actually see it for yourself. In 1 Kings 22. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians, but this story is going to be very helpful for us. 1 Kings 22. It's on page 364. 364. And uh, I want to show you this, this little story, just to get this story in our heads. It's a great little story. There's a king called Ahab bit of a baddie, king called Jehoshaphat, and they have this little council together about what they should do. You don't need to know all the details, don't worry too much. But they, uh, they have this, this council about what to do. And uh, Ahab gets in 400 prophets. He says, come on, let me call the prophets in, let's ask them what to do. Prophets, what shall we do? And uh, I want you to have a look down at um, verse 6. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or shall I refrain? So 400. That's like four times as many people as are in this room. That's a lot of people. And he said, so we obviously would have to shout quite loud so they could hear him. Shall I go to Israel? Shall I go and fight or not? And they all shout back, yay, go! Or actually... Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Yes, go. I reckon that was probably quite a powerful moment. I reckon the king of Israel probably felt pretty, yes, you're right. Look at me. Look what happens next. Then Jehoshaphat, this other king who's a bit more wise and godly, he said, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, there's still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. (laughs) Because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. So the, the king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat said. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, bring Micaiah, son of Imlah. You can imagine, it's like, okay, call Micaiah, call the boring one. And look at verse 10, it's really important. 
dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor. You've got a picture of the scene that Micaiah is coming into. You've got the two kings sitting in all their royal stuff on their thrones. And then you've got 400 prophets prophesying in front of them. Running around, shouting, go, the Lord's going to give into your hand. In fact, one of them has got so excited, Zedekiah, he's, made, he's, he's got all dramatic. He's made some iron horns. And he's running around with his iron horns going, uh, he's saying, I'll read it to you. Uh, this is what the Lord says, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. And they're all running around going, I'm going to gore you. It's like, really, quite a scene. Uh, and the messenger who'd gone to summon Micaiah said to him, This is a little word of wisdom, Micaiah. Listen, look. The other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. Can I humbly suggest that you say the same thing? Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Now, you've got to understand, here's the dilemma, right? Here is the Micaiah dilemma. The Micaiah dilemma is when 400 people in a room and one of them has got iron horns are running around saying, yes, go, 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 go. The king, God's going to give you victory. You're going to be victorious. And you walk in and you know that God is saying something different. Here's your dilemma. Do you just go with what everyone says? Do you say the popular message? Do you say what everyone wants to hear? Or do you speak what is true? That's the dilemma. Look what Micaiah does. He he says, shall I attack? He says halfway through verse 15, attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. You still think, oh, that's a bit of disappointment. Come on, Micaiah, I thought you were going to be a bit more up, up for it than that. But actually what happens next makes you realize that he said that in a very sarcastic way. That my guess is he went, oh yeah, go on then, attack and be victorious. The Lord will give it into your hand. Because the king then says to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw ill Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go to his home in peace. King of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? Micaiah holds his nerve and speaks what is true. Now, that is the dilemma. Right, come back to um, 1 Corinthians. Now, I know we've taken quite a long time over that, but I want you to understand that story as a backdrop to what I'm going to try and show you from um, 1 Corinthians. Because here is the dilemma that we face in our world all the time. We equate success or popularity with what is true. Something has the ring of truth about it because everybody's saying it. It must be true because look how many people are saying it. If something is strong and successful and if they've got iron horns, they're probably right. Let's go with the iron horns. Let's go with the message that sounds good. Let's go with the message that's popular. Let's go with the message that sounds strong and victorious and successful. Let's go with that. And if something is weak and unpopular, 
we equate that with something that's not true. It's what we do all the time. Success is intoxicating to us. The craving for success, the craving to be part of something successful is so important to us. It starts at a really early age. From, from tiny, we're taught, no, you need to be strong. You need to be successful. Success is right. Success is good. That's what life is all about. You've got to be the fastest or the prettiest or the cleverest or the funniest. You're defined by what you achieve. We place a huge value on life's winners. Your identity is tied up with being part of the 400, the winners. Failure and weakness is devastating to us. The fear of failure drives us forward. It starts at an early age. The fear of being slow or ugly or thick or boring. It drives us. We do not want to be associated. Failure has a habit of hanging around and our failure can begin to define us. So when a national leader suffers from a cough, we don't like it because it's weak. And yes, we're very sorry she felt poorly, but I'm not sure she can lead us anymore because she had a cough. Do you see? We associate failure and weakness with things that are wrong. It's the way our culture works. And because of this drive for success, we make this serious mistake. We end up pursuing success rather than truth. That is what matters to us. We would rather be successful than be truthful. That's what, that's what drives us. Because if something is successful, then people will think it's true. And truth is determined by the wave of public opinion, which makes it such a fluid thing. Truth is changing all the time. So it becomes very shifting. And Paul sees exactly the same principle as he looks at the church in Corinth. He can see they're facing the Micaiah dilemma. The difference is they're choosing the wrong side. They are opting for what is impressive and strong rather than what is weak but true. And they're getting it badly wrong. And the danger, that, that's a danger for us as a church, right? If only we could, if only we could show the church, the world, how impressive we are. We need to be a big church. We need some celebrities to become Christians. Because then everyone, because everyone knows that celebrities are right. Because they're successful. Honestly, you listen to some celebrities, they talk about a subject, you think, you have no more authority to speak on that than I do. But because you're successful, we assume you're right. We need to be careful of this. So we're going to work our way through this passage. And I know I've taken a long time to set it up, but I I want us now to work through, and I want to show you three things about this message that Paul preaches, which will smash this Micaiah dilemma and help us to see how to choose wisely, how to be a Micaiah, not an iron-horned thing. Here's the first thing. The gospel is entrusted, not invented. Look down with me at uh, verse 4. Here we go. This then is how you ought to regard us, Paul says. So Paul's writing this, preacher of the gospel, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. 
Paul says, I want to be very clear. I want you to think of me like this. Don't ever think that I dreamt up this message, Paul says. Don't ever think it was my idea. This is something that has been entrusted to me. Now, if you uh, decide to entrust your house to me, oh, you probably don't have a house. You may not have a house. Uh, let's do something else. Imagine you choose to trust, entrust your car. You haven't got a car. Imagine you choose to trust your, uh, your phone. You've definitely got a phone, most of you. Imagine you choose to entrust something precious to me. Um, and I take that thing. That's a, that's a responsibility that's been placed in my hands, right? And I have responsibility to act rightly with what you've entrusted to me. I do not have the right to go, oh, fantastic, they've given me their phone. Paul doesn't say that it was given to him. It says it was entrusted to him. He still has a responsibility with what he does with it. So I could run around with this phone, go, look at my phone, look, look, look. And I could say, look, it bounces. Oh, no, it doesn't. And uh, you know, I, could, I could treat it really badly, and, and I could make you all laugh, and you think, oh, he's so funny. Look at him. Oh, he's really like chilled out with possessions. And I'm trying to win your approval when all the time the only person's approval who math- that matters is the person who owns the phone. And what you've got here, have a look. That's exactly how it works here. Verse 2, now it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. Here's what Paul is saying, right? I have been given this message about Jesus, this message of Christ and him crucified. I've been given this message. My job is not to be novel or brilliant or clever. My job is to be faithful with it. To not stuff it up. To not spoil it or mangle it or ruin it. My job is to be faithful. So look what he says in verse 3. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't actually care, Paul says, what you think of me. Wow. That's quite a liberating thing to say, isn't it? Paul says, what you think of me is not important. I don't even care what I think of myself. My own verdict on me. The only thing that matters, Paul says, is what God thinks of me. My conscience is clear, verse 4, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. So he says to them, therefore, stop judging before the appointed time. Stop sitting in judgment saying, oh, yes, I think I'm going to decide what's right and wrong here. It's God's truth. We don't have the right to judge. I think that's what you see in Micaiah. As he walked into that room, he did not see the 400 prophets and their horns. He did not see the two kings sitting on the throne. All he saw was the God of the universe sat on his throne. And he said, well, there's only one verdict that matters here. And I don't care, Zedekiah and your horns, what you think of me. And I don't care... Ahab and Jehoshaphat, what you think of me? I only care what my master, the Lord God Almighty, thinks of me. That is how you choose truth 
rather than success. That is how you choose to be faithful rather than popular. Paul says, I wasn't trying to win a popularity contest. And I think this is such a challenge for us as churches. It can be so tempting to want to be popular. So tempting for everyone to go, oh yeah, it's fantastic, we're a fantastic church. It doesn't matter what people think. It, it, it does not, there is no opinion in this world of this church that matters other than what God thinks. And actually, you won't know what God thinks until the appointed time. There's a faithfulness here. There's a day coming when God will expose what is hidden. He will expose the motives of the heart. And it's only at that time then you will see what people have truly been living for. It's his gospel. He entrusted it. It is precious. He gave it to Paul and said, I'm going to entrust this to you. And Paul says, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. Now listen, if you're a Christian here, and as Globe Church, in that same way, the gospel, the message of Christ and him crucified, has been entrusted to us. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with it? It's entrusted, not invented. Have a look at the second thing. The gospel is fixed, not fluid. Have a look down to uh, have it down um, at the next section. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so you may learn from us the meaning of the saying: "Do not go beyond what is written." Here's the point: He's saying the gospel doesn't change. You can't just. It's not a fluid thing. Right, okay, when um, the Wright brothers invented aeroplanes, <laughs> invented aeroplanes, um, when they invented the aeroplane, it was their invention, right? It was their first idea. But it wasn't a fixed thing. It wasn't like them from then on, no one was ever allowed to do anything different. You just always had to make aeroplanes that way. People came along with new ideas, new technology. new They built on it. They took the technology and they built on it. They invented it. They built on it. And it grew and it changed and, it, and they built on it. That's not how the gospel works. When God's message of Christ and him crucified was given, it doesn't change. Paul says, even I, even I and Apollos, we can't go beyond what's written. We cannot change this message. We can't say, well, actually, we've had a new idea. We love novelty. We love the idea of something new. We love the idea of, here's someone with a new idea. If anyone says to you, I've got a new idea about God, they're wrong. They're just just wrong. Because God has revealed himself to us in the pages of the Bible. Now there may be all sorts of ways that we don't yet know and that we can explore and we can understand more and more of him. But there's nothing new. God has revealed himself. And that's why he says, then stop boasting about it. Oh, I like this preacher because he has lots of new ideas. No, what you want is a preacher who has no new ideas. You want a preacher who just keeps telling you the old ideas over and over and over again. 
who says, Jesus Christ was crucified for you. Jesus laid down his life for you. Jesus is the one true son of God. He's the only way to the Father. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. You want a preacher who keeps saying that? And when there's 400 prophets shouting all sorts of other things and saying, no, we've discovered something new. That's old-fashioned. There's something new. There's a new idea. You stand over here with my chyre and you say, no, I will be faithful. It's a fixed, not a fluid thing. And one final thing. Let's look down at verse 8. And the third thing is that this is um, weak and not strong. Now, this bit, from verse 8 onwards, is slightly puzzling, isn't it? I think what Paul is doing is he's being slightly sarcastic in a, in a, slightly, in a kind of godly way. You know, godly sarcasm. He's saying, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. This is what they're claiming, right? So Paul says, well, how are you doing, Corinthians? He phones them up. How are you doing? They say, oh, we're doing okay. We have all we want. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we, we've become rich. Oh, great. Uh, we've begun to reign, actually. Oh, super. Paul says, really? And then he says, halfway through verse 8, how I wish you really had begun to reign. You haven't got a clue what you're talking about. How I wish you really had. Verse 9, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. Paul's saying, don't you think it's slightly odd that you are so successful and powerful and rich and wealthy and awesome, and I'm so weak and pathetic, and I'm the messenger of the gospel? Do you not think there's something weird going on there? And what has happened is that into this church in Corinth have come some of these 400 type prophets who are coming in and saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus is fine, Jesus is fine, but you can have everything now. Attack and be victorious now. Live in freedom now. You can, you can reign now. Have it all. You don't have to suffer or struggle or cry. Just be, have it all. Be powerful. Be strong. Paul is writing to say, they are wrong. And he explains that they're wrong in the most powerful and profound way. Look what he says. He talks about his own testimony. And he says, listen, we seem to be on the end. We're we're last in line. We've been made a public spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We're fools. You're wise, we're weak. You're strong. We're honoured. You're, dis- you're honoured. We're dishonoured. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're tired. We're homeless. We're broken. We're brutalised. We're slandered. We're persecuted. We're cursed. Don't you feel it? Paul says, that's my experience of being a Christian. And your experience of being a Christian is we are powerful and strong and honoured and rich and well-fed. Paul says you've got it completely wrong. The message of Jesus is authenticated by this sort of a life. And he finishes with that powerful 
statement, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this point. Okay, let's play a little game. Uh, Here's 400 prophets with their horns going, be victorious, be strong, you can have everything you want now, you can reign now, have gifts of power and healing, and you can be strong at everything now. And over here, you've got little Paul going, well, I'm homeless and brutalized and slandered, and people hate me, and I'm hungry, and my clothes are all in tatters. Which one are you going to choose? Which one are you going to choose? Of course it's attractive. Of course the church in Corinth has been taken in. But here is the point, and if you fall, this is it, right? Why is Paul so absolutely committed to a life like that? Because what he's describing is exactly the life that Jesus lived. It is absolutely a description of Jesus. Listen to it. Jesus was condemned to die in the arena. He was made a public spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. He became foolish and weak and dishonored. He was hungry and thirsty in rags, brutally treated, homeless, working hard. When he was cursed, he blessed. When he was persecuted, he endured it. When he was slandered, he answered kindly. He became the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. And how do you know that? Well, because they took him and they nailed him to a cross. That's what you do with garbage. Jesus went that way. That is the way he walked. And Paul says, I'm going that way too. That's the way. And you might say, well, one idiot. Why on earth would you do that? What a stupid way to live your life. Yes, if it was the end of the story. (laughs) But Paul knows what happened to Jesus. Paul knows that Jesus' rags have been turned to riches. His poverty has been turned to unimaginable wealth. His dishonor has been turned to glorious honor. The brutality has been turned into worship. Paul knows that that, that is the way to glory. And when Paul looks at Jesus, he sees in Jesus this man, Christ crucified, and he says, Jesus, you did it for me. I'm walking with you. So it's interesting, isn't it? The greatest Micaiah who's ever lived is Jesus. Jesus who stood up in front of all of the world and said, no, I will be faithful, even to the point of death. Jesus willing even to give his life in order to save us. So let's wrap this all up as we see this. As we see that this message of Paul is entrusted and not invented. It's It's the message that is fixed, not fluid. It's not changing. It's the message that's weak, not strong. Here is the big challenge for us as we go into this week. Are we willing to embrace that?
I've got to say to you, I, I find it really hard. I, I think I like this. I think I like the 400. I like the life of comfort and ease and victory and strength and honor. I like that. I don't like this. But this is the way. This is the way God calls us to walk. This is the way Christ calls you to walk this week. And you're going to face times this week when you walk into places and there are 400 people with their iron horns running around saying, rah, 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 do this. And God is going to say to you, will you be my Micaiah? Will you be faithful? Will you hold firm? Will you walk this road of pain? Yeah, but they'll all laugh at me. Yeah, they laughed at Jesus. That's the challenge. I find this a big challenge for us. This is a big challenge for us as a church. And I want us to pray. I want us to ask that God would teach us this. And we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this together and worshipping Jesus for who he is and praying that he would help us. But there's great encouragement here too. If you feel something of that pain and that struggle and that weakness, you're walking in Jesus' footsteps. It's Jesus' footsteps. I think that's why when you talk to Christians who are suffering intensely, they actually find joy there. There is joy in walking in the footsteps of Jesus. It's painful, but there's joy. Let's pray together, and then we're going to sing. Father, we confess that we can be so like this church in Corinth, Lord. I I feel it in my heart. I think many of us feel it. This desire to be approved of, to be successful, to be seen, to be right in the eyes of the world, to, to go with the overwhelming tide of public opinion. Father, please forgive us. We thank you that your way is a better way. Thank you that the way of Jesus is the true way. Thank you that Jesus is the one who was faithful even to the point of death. Pray that we might follow him. Help us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.